your mission should you choose to accept it. Learn the Moscow Rules on Global IQ with Jim Falk. One thinks of Espionage, the TV series Mission Impossible, which aired on CBS from 1966 to 1973, followed later by the very successful movie franchise starring Tom Cruise, comes to mind. What may surprise our listeners is that the CIA and Hollywood have had a surprisingly close connection, a relationship that was shepherded and enhanced by our guest, Jonna Mendez, and her late husband, Tony, whose work was highlighted in the movie Argo. Jonna, who was the CIA's chief of disguise, is in Dallas to speak about her recently published book, The Moscow Rules, The Secret CIA Tactics That Helped America Win the Cold War. It's great to have you here in Dallas. I've heard so much about you. I love being here. Thank you. So Michael McFall, who is a recent guest, describes the current state of relations between Russia and the U.S. as a hot piece, the title of his recent book. Yet, as you point out, it is somewhat reminiscent of another period, 1986, Take us back then, and why was that year such a tense time in U.S. then Soviet relations? 85-86 was going toward the end of the Cold War, although you could have a long conversation about that end of the Cold War. 85 was called the year of the spy, and just a series, a blitz of spy cases came out of the woodwork. We had spies everywhere in Washington, D.C. We had a lot of Americans who were involved in espionage. Aldrich Ames, Bob Hansen. John Walker, Edward Lee Howard, Anna Montez, it goes on and on. They all happened like at the same time. And for those of us who are fans of Jean Le Carré, his novels about the Cold War, we've seen the term Moscow rules. It's a familiar term. Tell us about how it came about and why is it also still timely? Well, you know, Carré was the first one who really put it out there on the table in a public way, the Moscow rules. But he never said what the Moscow rules were. We were always thinking about that. And my husband, Tony, started writing them down. He didn't invent them. We didn't make the Moscow rules. We simply have put them on paper. We've recorded them. They're the rules of how you comport yourself in the most difficult city in the world for a CIA espionage officer to operate. There is so much surveillance in Moscow. And And you mentioned that there's as many as 50,000 officers just in Moscow. That's a number from General Oleg Kalugin, who was one of them, lives in the United States now. He's on our board at the Spy Museum. It didn't matter if you were in your car, because they were trailing you in vehicles behind. If you were walking, they were stalking you through the city. If you were in your apartment, they had bugs in the walls that were live bugs. That means they weren't recording your conversations. They were actually listening minute by minute as you had a conversation or an argument with your spouse. And even when you were in the American embassy, we didn't consider it safe. In fact, we were not above passing notes at the water fountain. Of course, there's a famous story, I'm forgetting the year, about when we built our new embassy and had to tear part of it down, didn't we? That's exactly right. It took 30 years to negotiate and begin to build that new... But that was Russia, not the Soviet Union, I believe, right? It was. The name of the country changed while they were building that building. Our State Department negotiated the arrangement. Ambassador Hartman was the one on duty when the building was going up, and they allowed Soviet materials and Soviet workers to put it together. They had some fun. They bugged our embassy so incredibly that it was in the rebar. You could not remove the bugs. Even if you could identify them, you couldn't take them out. You had to take the building down, and we took the building down. What was the genesis of the CIA's Office of Disguise? 
The Office of Disguise that I worked in, I inherited from Tony Mendez, who had been there 10 years before me. And oddly, we were both Chief of Disguise, separated by 10 years. But he started some things that I ended up finishing, which was actually quite a bit of fun. When he took it over, it was not that well thought of. Disguise was a tool that you would want to have with you when you were overseas. But a lot of our men were not really interested in putting on wigs and pasting on mustaches. If they were military men, they actually would refuse to do it. Over time, though, the technology morphed, and so did the situation. So initially, disguise would give you deniability. It would give you anonymity. As things progressed and terrorism and narcotics came into play, it became a form of body armor. It could actually save your life. Being able to not look like yourself or not look like an American could make the difference between whether you were a target or not. How did this special relationship with Hollywood develop, and particularly with John Chambers, who was the man behind the scenes in yeah. lots of famous movies like Planet of the Apes, too, I think? The Island of Dr. Moreau is the first one I'm aware of that he worked on. It's supposed to have been a terrible movie, but he was making monsters out of people. And my husband, Tony Mendez, was next to him on the set. They were both sculpting. Tony was sculpting people. John Chambers was sculpting monsters. Chambers thought he had the better end of Did that Tony deal. Did Tony call Chambers to set up this relationship? It's a question I never really asked him. How did it actually, actually begin? I don't know. I can't say. Through Chambers, we met a lot of people out in L.A. So in the movie Argo, when Tony decides to use a location scouting crew as a cover to rescue these Americans that were stuck in Tehran, it wasn't as far-fetched as it seemed. He had a lot of understanding of those film crews, how it worked, and he was right. It worked very, very well. How accurate was the movie? The movie was accurate. I always compare a book to a movie. I always prefer the book. When they started working on the script for Argo, I said, we should write the book. You should get that story down on paper for history because you know in the movies they're going to change things. And of course they did. There's a chase scene in that movie at the end where there's a jeep running after an airplane trying to take off. But that never happened. And that was Tony's favorite scene in the whole movie. In your book, you have some descriptions of just some fascinating characters. I know that the CIA has some of the best educated minds in the United States and some very colorful people such as George Methley, who developed long life batteries. Tell us more about him. George Methley, when I met him in our technical office, the office that mimicked Q to the CIA, George was kind of a wild man. He was young. He had blonde hair that he never cut. We weren't packaged that way at the CIA. So here came George with his hair kind of blowing back as he's walking down the hall. And he's wearing red plaid pants and a yellow striped shirt and white socks and black sandals. He was a genius. Everyone loved him. But his specialty was batteries. I said to friends, you know, short of being a urologist, I can't think of a more boring job than to spend your career working on batteries. But George knew we needed them. We had audio bugs that were in wood blocks that we would place conveniently underneath conference tables in, say, the Politburo, and they're battery operated. Getting it in there and planted was a tremendous coup. Going in to change the batteries was never going to happen. So George's job 
was to see if I could make them smaller, more powerful, smaller yet, even more powerful. So that was the George Methley that I knew. He ended up, he moved up in the government, he moved out of the CIA. He was one of the people that saved the Hubble telescope. He worked on the Hubble. They went up, they took some of his equipment. Remember, they fixed it and it went on for some period of time. We often think about the space program and the technology transfer that goes to the private sector and eventually to us, the consumer. That's right. The CIA, in a sense, has been involved in technology transfers on batteries and other products. Absolutely. So I want to take you back to another tough period for the agency, and that was in 1977 with Stanfield Turner mm-hmm. in the so-called Halloween Massacre. Was that not really, in a sense, even more serious than we realize in that we took away some of the best covert officers at a time in Iran and the Middle East where we really needed it? Stansville Turner decided six, seven months into his tenure as head of CIA that he would eliminate 820 jobs, most of them in the Directorate of Operations, most of them operations officers that would be working overseas, a lot of them in Soviet East European Division. There was a furor in the CIA when he did that. Halloween massacre inside, we called it a bloodbath. My father-in-law from my first marriage, who had been in CIA since the end of the war, who was a very effective officer, got one of the notices, two paragraphs over his signature. Thank you for your service. We lost language capability. We lost area knowledge. We lost historic perspective on the targets that we were looking at. Stansville Turner was not so much interested in human and human intelligence. He had seen some embarrassing things happen. He had seen some of our officers operated. He wanted technology. He wanted satellites. He wanted it done electronically. If, and if I suspect, given President Carter's background, that fell in line. President Carter was down in the weeds, we used to say. He was all about the nitty gritty details, not the human element. What's Jack in the Box? Jack in the Box. We called it a jib. We had a need for our officers in Moscow to be able to escape from surveillance, say surveillance in a car, because that was where they normally would encounter it. If they couldn't shake surveillance, they couldn't do their work. They would just go back to the embassy. They would abort the operation. The -the jack-in-the-box was a pop-up dummy that came initially in a briefcase. You could get in the passenger seat of the car with the briefcase, put it on the floor, This is all meticulously planned over months, this one operation. The driver would know exactly where they were going to do this little choreography. You needed two right turns. If you did it correctly, your surveillance would kind of stay back a little, give you some elbow room because they thought they knew where you were going. And you needed about five or seven seconds. It was called a gap. If you could get a gap, go around a corner and have seven seconds before you went around the next one, the case officer had time to get out of the car and push the, the driver would push the button and the dummy would pop up. And he would be wearing the case officer's clothes, the case officer's face, the case officer's hair. So the surveillance car would come around after the corner and they'd see going slowly down the street, the same two guys in the car, they thought. And our officer would be going to work. Well, can I assume that the Russians have the same skills? I wouldn't assume it at all because they don't need them. There's no place like Moscow in the world. The Russians here in the United States, we don't surveil them that way. We're not sticking to them like glue. Why not? Why not? It's the FBI's job. This is a more democratic operation here. We just don't pay that kind of close attention. 
Now, I can't say what we do today because I'm not there today. But when I was working, we did not treat the Soviets the way they treat us. As a number of our listeners are Aggies from Texas A&M University, one of your good friends and a good friend of our council is Jim Olson, who just wrote a new book himself, To Catch a Spy. You knew him as a young case officer. Yes. He Tell was us a, a little bit about that. He was a good friend of Tony's. He and Tony worked together on an operation called CK Taw. And at the end of that, the work was so close. They were acquaintances at the beginning. They became good friends during that operation. Um, we've seen him many times over the years. Um, so what was that operation that was so important? CK Taw was a communications link from a nuclear site outside of Moscow into the defense ministry in town. They changed their communications. They dug a trench along a major highway. Every 50 yards, you could access it with a manhole. We needed to get someone in the manhole. We needed eyes on what that cable was. We thought it was the nuclear information. So Jim Olson was selected to be the one, first one in. This was a big deal. This operation was a big deal, and it was successful. It was one of his first assignments. It was. It became a disguise scenario. How can you get this painfully Western diplomat in his three-piece suit, how can you get him down in the manhole? And we tell the story in the book. Your book concludes with a very sober warning that today the rules are rougher. You say they're more elastic and that espionage has become more of a contact sport. What is the impact of that? for the CIA's ability to fulfill its mission? I know that we have always met the challenges in Russia. It has changed. It's become more physical. They beat up one of our officers in June of 2016. They had to medevac the man out. He was simply getting out of a taxi and walking into the embassy. Tony said, clearly, that young man didn't follow one of the rules, that which was, don't harass your opposition. Another way to say it is, don't piss him off. He did, and he paid. They broke his clavicles. There are solutions to every problem. There are ways around almost anything that can be thrown up. We worked with the worst they had back then. I don't know what the worst is right now, but I know that we're on it. And I have confidence that uh, our Soviet East European division can work despite whatever they do. Well, John, I want to thank you for joining me and being on the podcast. Obviously, I really enjoyed your book, and I'm so glad that your late husband was able to see it to its conclusion. It was important. Thanks for being in Dallas. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate the Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Special thanks to our longtime producers, Kara Schechtman and Kayla Smith. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. This message will self-destruct in three, two, one.